Before we get into the show, here's a quick word from HubSpot. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work. Thankfully, HubSpot for Startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects all your teams together. Plus, they have a bunch of resources to help you scale, and they offer discounts up to 90% off. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for Startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your favorite podcast for all things growth, marketing, entrepreneurship, and well, awesome stuff on the internet. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner. As always, I am joined by the man that you all might think of as the marketing Yoda, but he thinks of himself as a guy on a beach doing yoga. He's the one, he's the only, he's Kieran Flanagan. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing good. Friday, I've got my, please sponsor me, Starbucks coffee on the go. (laughs) No coffee, no milk, all decaffeinated with some almond milk. I'm feeling good. You know, I'm a no coffee drinker for listeners of the pod. Never had a cup of coffee. Which is weird. That's my controversial piece of information for you. Caffeine free, baby. This is all high energy. It's all natural. Kieran, I want to get right into it. We have a new reader question comment I want to get right into. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. So from Fanny Kuhn. We have, this is the whole uh, this whole thing. Uh, you make me look forward to my work commute. Oh, thank you. That was really nice. That makes, that makes me feel good. <laughs> Great podcast that always sparks ideas. Episode request. Would be cool to know what marketing resources you place on your top list and recommend to become as nerdy as you guys about marketing. Books, newsletters, other resources. Kieran, what, what, what should she check out, man? Okay, so I have to recommend to begin with, because if you're in tech, you have to read this book, even though it's nothing to do with tech. It's Sapiens. It's the history of human evolution. If you're at dinner or anything and you haven't read Sapiens and you can't join the kind of like tech nerd growth club, <laughs> literally everyone has read that book. Yep. Uh, other ones that I've read that are kind of cool um, that come to mind, The Hard Things About the Hard Things. Mm-hmm. Love that one. Hooked is one of my all-time favorites and Near Ale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Traction. A rework. And then I read this one called The Platform Revolution. I think we all read this at the same time. Yes. Did you read this one at the same time? I did. It was really good. There are some of the ones that come to mind. One of the ones I'm reading right now, this won't come as a surprise to you, Kip, is the book on the history of breath work. <laughs> nice. Like basically breathing through different cultures and how breath work has been used throughout different cultures. So I think that's a pretty good one. I'm reading that one right now. That's pretty awesome. Any other like newsletters, other sources? I'm on Stratchery, obviously. That is Stratechery for people who don't understand Kieran's pronunciation <laughs> issues. Uh, names, weak point. <laughs> I'm on Not Born. Packy's Not Born. I'm on The Hustle, of course. Shout out Hustle. Yes. I'm on Milk Road. Yep. I think you only have room for three to five newsletters, even though I have another 20. I love The Milk Road. Yeah, I think Sean and Ben have done a great job with that newsletter. So those are, those are awesome suggestions. I'll go next. So on the book side of things, I think you want books that are either pretty broad and thought-provoking, something like Sapiens is a good example. Like for me in that bucket, I'd add like The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio. I'd add Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is really awesome and just a really good insight into brand. Or you want books that deep dive onto topics. One of the things that reading does, it helps you think better, but it also helps you write better. So I love books about writing. Mm. One of the best books I've ever read is there's an old, old book. And sometimes the old books on writing are like the best. One of the best books I've ever read is a book called Direct Mail Copy That Sells. It's an 
old, old copywriting book. You can find it on Amazon and paperback used. It's by a guy named Herschel Gordon Lewis, who's like a copywriter, horror film director, like really fascinating dude, professor, all kinds of things. So that book is like an underrated thing. Our co-founder Darmesh recommended, I've not yet read On Writing Well. I have not yet read it. I have by, it. By William Zinser. Yep, I have that. Those are like the two big like, kind of getting nerdy. If you haven't read, uh, you know, look, New Rules of Marketing PR, David Meerman Scott, like helps you anchor in like how the world changed in Web 2. And you could draw some of those parallels for how it's going to change in Web 3. I read all the same newsletters as Kieran. Those are all really good and interesting newsletters. And I would say your kind of root question is like, how do you get nerdy? I'll give you my hack that I shared with Kieran, but Kieran can't do because he lives in Ireland is I pay $2.99 for Twitter Blue a month and I bookmark, basically have whole bookmark folders of everything I want to do, whether they're stories for this pod, whether they're investing advice, whether they're marketing topics. And I go and I, I go back and read those every week because sometimes you'll see something really good. It'll be in the moment. You won't have time to read it. So using Twitter bookmarks as a way to get really good threads or rediscover awesome links to kind of current things is really awesome. Yeah. And I would say one last shout out to the book that I'm reading now is called The Rational Optimist. Oh, I need to read that book. Which basically is how I feel about myself. I feel like I'm a rational optimist. So I'm just reading it for self-validation. It's called The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves. Nice. I'm reading The Rational Pessimist. (laughs) Well, that's very fitting. Did you write it too? Yeah, I'm actually going to write that book. Can I give a quick shout out to two other books, actually? Please, please. Well, I forgot about this one and I've read it twice. You may have read it. It's an old, an oldish book, Position in the Battle for Your Mind, 2001. Oh, I've not read that. I need to. Yeah, it's one of the best books for product positioning and brand. And then mm. one of the ones, I feel like if you want to understand the world and how the world is going to become, Ready Player One is a really good book. <laughs> nice, like, nice, I like that. Science fiction is a great way to understand where the world is going. I read a lot of science fiction to try to understand the future. That's a pro tip for everybody listening. So I hope that gives you some great knowledge. We gave you a full summer reading list, I think. Hopefully that will help evolve and change your perspective. And I think you're probably already as nerdy as us. You just don't know it yet. Uh, You just have to know it and admit it. That's job one in being a nerd. Kier, we have an amazing show today. Yes. Do you want to tell people what we've got coming up on the show today? Yeah, we have an incredible episode. We're going to talk about why brands build large audiences. You know, why should you care about building a large audience for your product or services? We're going to take you through that. The other thing that Kip and I are going to do live is try to build a framework for how you should think about transformational messaging. All transformational messaging is either aspirational or functional, but all transformational messaging is really important for your brand to be differentiated, stand out, and build a tribe for your product or services. We are going to take you through all of that in this and try to do a framework live on the podcast. Live frameworks. What could go wrong? Wait, probably everything. Probably everything. But it will be fun, I guarantee. But it will be fun. (laughs) Well, okay. We're going to cover a main topic today. The main topic of the day, you got Kieran and I solo, and we're going to go a deep dive on how rationality... F's up your B2B marketing. Yes. And quite frankly, it doesn't have to even be qualified as B2B. It could be any marketing. Kieran, I've got a few points that I want to go over and talk about with you. The first one is that most businesses slash marketers under-obsess about building a big audience. They get really niche focused. They get really granular in focus. Why do they do it and why shouldn't they do it? Like make the counter argument for that behavior is a bad thing to do. 
I think there's a couple of things, right? You want to bet on the future. If you look at the future, where have we come and where are we going? In B2B, we have come from a world of where we build products for buyers, market to buyers. And actually, that's why we do a lot of niche stuff, because we are trying to target a small collection of people who can buy our products. We kind of transitioned to like a user-led era where we built products for users, where we created content for users. And that's why you've started to see B2B brands create large audiences for Mm -hmm. their products and services. Like back in the day, you wouldn't have a HubSpot having a larger blog than business publications like Inc. or Entrepreneur, or there was no reason to do that. In a world where we actually want to build community around a product, there's a reason to do that. People think too much about what is the most important thing today versus like, what is the most important thing in the future? Mm -hmm. I love that. You and I have always believed if you can own a large part of the ecosystem, a large part of the market you are trying to address, it leads to unforeseen advantages and points to leverage that you can't even anticipate until you actually move forward and actually start to have some of these things open up. For us, having a large community has helped us in ways that we could not have imagined, where that as we have now our own free media landscape that we can do our own brand advertising across. We have all these big partnerships that we do because we can leverage each other's audience. So like we have audience, which is a valuable commodity mm-hmm. within that market and valuable commodity you can kind of use in interesting ways. Like most of the people I've talked to in terms of founders have always asked, why do you need such a large audience? And I think it's still hard to explain to them why it matters. Like I've met a couple of founders who get it. They're like, oh, I don't care if this thing doesn't pay me back for five years. I just want to be the premier community for this yes. thing, right? This thing that is tangential to my brand or tangential to my customer success or related to my brand story or related to my customer success. So I think that's why I would love to get some of your thoughts, but for us, more is better, has always been better. <laughs> but I think it's important to articulate some of the why behind that. And one of the reasons that's true is that I want to make sure everybody understand is that I think a lot of thinking, especially in the business to business landscape, is still kind of like rooted in this idea of decision makers or everything. Yes. You know, it's like I run a big marketing team. I'm a decision maker for very few things. Right. My team decides 90% of what we do, right? And what we use, what we buy, how we spend our money. I have no budget, right? Like there's no line item with my name on the budget. It's it's distributed across the team. And we're in that shift from decision makers being everything to decision makers still mattering, but the, the team and the sentiment across the team being incredibly important. And I think one of the things that you can get a lot of leverage on is leaning into the team and being the most loved, talked about product brand across like an internal team of humans who are trying to do that work. Right. You can uh, help people with problems long before they ever use your products. And even when you go into teams, even for us, it's a variety of people within those teams who may start using software that actually gets adopted and then bought. Yes. Like any one of those people can start to adopt software because today you can start to do that for free, right? As long as you have some security checks and things like that, you don't need to pay for it. The The problem historically for B2B is someone on the team cannot start using the product because they need to get budget mm-hmm. signed off and make a case for it before they've even used it. That's changed in the user-led model or the user-led era, because today anyone can start using a product, get value from it, and then take it to the rest of their team and say, hey, this is really valuable for me. Like, can we actually buy a version of this? Let me give you a really good example in HubSpot. Please. Loom. We were yeah very, very early users of Loom. It started within my team and it just spread like wildfire. Like one person started Loom into to another person and it spread like fire within HubSpot. And the, the founders come in and talk to us. They're really cool a company, have gone on to do incredible things. But just a great example of like one person 
decided to use Loom and HubSpot to do some of their own work. And that thing just took off within the mm -hmm. company. And that is very different from where we were 10 years ago, right? That could never have happened uh, 10, 15 years ago. And so I think that's why it matters to be a central part of your entire market and not just think about the people who buy your product, but think about all of the people who not only use your product, but also think about the people who could recommend your product to their colleagues and to their network. I completely agree. And part of this is an aspirational problem. I think one of the things we've learned is that too many times businesses or marketing leaders start out with like, how do I hit my goals for this year? And that's all fine and well and good. And you need to think about that, but that shouldn't be the first thought that you have. The first thought you should have is like, how do I win this market long term? Right. How do I get to number one? And once you start looking at it from an absolute versus a relative perspective, I want to be number one versus like, I want to be okay. And you start looking at it as from a multi-year problem instead of a one-year problem, then you start incorporating a lot of different strategies and a lot of different ideas. We're talking about one of those now, which is like building a bigger audience and having a larger scale community of people than you think you need to have like the positive word of mouth, sentiment, brand awareness, all of those things in your market to help propel you to the first place in the category. And I think it's that long-term thinking that aids that. Long-term thinking is also really hard. <laughs> it's so hard, especially when you're just getting started. Yeah, when you're just getting started. I think there's like a ratio, every round you raise or every number of employees you get to and amount of revenue you get to, there's a ratio probably between the kind of short-term thinking and the long-term thinking you need to adopt. But to your point, like what is the one or two long-term investments that if they win, like they seem irrational and unreasonable right now, but if they actually come off, like I'm just going to be in such a different place, right? For us, yes. a lot of it was media. Then in 2016, 2017, it was product-led growth. Yep. You know, we've kind of made a couple of large outlandish bets. And I think you have to have some sort of conviction about those things to be a differentiated large uh, company who win in your market. Perfect. I, I'm not even going to say anything else. Kieran just nailed it. I was going to give him a virtual podcast round of applause. <laughs> I want to go to, to our next point on this topic of rationality. I'll set it up for you, and I'd love to hear your take here. One of the things that I hear from earlier stage companies, whether it be in the technology ecosystem or lifestyle businesses, what have you, is they get really interested and hung up on product marketing and communicating like the features and the benefits of their product. Because that's a rational thing to do, right? It's like, oh, I have this product. I want to take this product and I want to tell people what my product does. The challenge with that is that rationality forces them down that path of doing one, what everybody else are doing. And they often aren't thinking through what category am I in? How am I disrupting this category? What is the emotional benefits of my brand and my product? Not just like, what does it tactically do? What are the speeds and feeds of how it helps you? But like, how does it make somebody's life better? How does it make somebody feel better? The emotional side of that. What's your take? Like, do you think that that rationality and the obsession around product marketing, getting started, product marketing is very important, don't get me wrong, but I see so many people wanting to start, like kind of job one with product marketing. Is right. that good, bad, or other? Okay, well, this could be a good debate because I am one of the people who tell founders one of the best places to start is with product marketing. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so the, why, why do I say that to founders? Well, yeah, please tell me. Actually, for all of the reasons that you've just said, like the first thing you can do, even pre-product market fit, when you're trying to find a cohort of customers that will use your product and your retention starts to flat at night, is have a product marketer who can start to really define what is the use case that you solve? Mm -hmm. What is the thing 
that you solve for customers? How did they describe that problem? How did they describe your solution? How can you make sure you have clear positioning for that customer segment, which like kind of helps you attract more of that customer segment, but also helps them understand why you're the solution for them. All you're really doing in pre-product market fit is trying to find a selection of customers that will use your product and your attention will start to flatten out. And I think to do that, you need clear clarity of like, what does my product solve? Who does it solve it for? And how do I position it for them? And then as you start to grow a little bit beyond that, a product marketer can help you, like whether you're a sales-led business, mm-hmm. it can help you with a collateral for the sales team and make sure that your decks are positioned in that way. If you're a product-led company, help your one, two engineer if you're really early stage, craft the in-app messaging and the onboarding to make sure it's positioned correctly. So I actually think I do do the rational thing there. And I actually tell founders, a single product marketer is a good early hire to make. I would love to hear your thoughts about what would be like the opposite version of that? What what would be the the version where you don't hire that and who would you hire? Yeah, so here's the counter argument. It's an interesting thing. First of all, I think you're talking about a, a very nice version of product marketing that often doesn't happen in practice. You know, like the first thing that needs to happen is like, what is your category and why do you exist? And like, there's some just fundamental questions that have to get answered. What I would do instead of starting with product marketing, I would either hire like an agency or consultant to help me frame up these questions that I'm about to go through, Mm. or I would have like my head of marketing, like go and do some strategic research with maybe some contractors and freelancers to come up with these answers. And it's like, all right, for our business right now, are we product constrained or redistribution constrained? Like, do we have product market fit and we just need to sell that product more? Or are there core gaps in our product that we need to fix? You know, like that's a core question that you got to answer. What category do we play in? And is that a existing category that we are trying to disrupt? Or is that a new category that we are trying to create? One of the biggest cons about just hiring a, a product marketer off the street is that person, even if they're the best, often doesn't feel empowered to say, oh, we're never going to win this existing category. We have to go and start this new category and disrupt this market by creating a new category. When you start with kind of product marketing and just one product marketer versus like a very senior leader doing it, you don't get the bold case scenarios of, oh, we need to do something very different here to be successful and really win this market. Doesn't mean that that product marketing work is not super important. It is, but it's like, I think you have to start with this super set of questions and activities to make that happen so that you're crystal clear around your business. Because it's really a business strategy thing. It's not just marketing. It is to my customers. How am I thinking about my category? Am I creating it or am I disrupting it? Are we a better mousetrap? You know, like, are we just coming in and doing what somebody knows about? and we're just doing it 10 times better. If that's the case, then you're probably trying to disrupt a current category. You're right. Or are you transformational? Are you coming in and doing something in a very different way, doing something that people don't yet know that they should be doing? Then you have to kind of create a new category around that. And I think it's this type of work that most companies don't get to because it seems fluffy. It seems like, oh, you know, like I could understand that would be interesting, but what are we actually going to do with it? It's the process of going through the answers to these questions and building a business and marketing and sales strategy around it that really unlocks really long-term, repeatable, and scalable growth. I have lots of questions because this is a really great topic. Let's go. And so this is a common question or discussion I would have with founders. Mm -hmm. Who's responsible for category definition? Are we building a better mousetrap? Are we uh, trying to redefine or rebuild the category? 
who's responsible for that piece of work and when does it happen? And maybe for our listeners, if you can call that, like it should happen basically, you know, pre-product market fit. It should happen when you're a series A and you have a little bit of traction. Like when do you think that should happen and who should actually do those things? Uh, look, I think it is a, a three-headed monster of the head of marketing, the founder, and the head of product. You know, and again, if the founder is playing one of those roles, then it's two people or whatever, right? Depends on how the company's working. But it's a product, a business model, and a messaging strategy that's all coming together. And ultimately, the founder has to drive it, make the final decision. But I think the marketing leader has to be the person who's really running and facilitating everything first and foremost. And the second part of your question was like, when the heck do you start? Like, how do you do this? I think it's one of those things, you can do it anytime. I tend to be on the mindset of the earlier, the better. As long as you have some validation, that there's a market here, that you have some clue of what we're going to build and that customers want it. You know, you've got your first couple friends and family customers starting working down this path and you're starting to have like a clear product roadmap. Then I think you have to come in and say, well, what are we actually building to? What do we right. call this? And like, what's the mission? If I'm going to go hire 100 people over the next three years to come build this with us, what are we doing? What are we telling our customers? What are we telling our employees? All of these things have to come pretty early on or it just compounds and becomes harder and harder over time. So I'd love to hear what you think about this, right? I'll kind of take on the role of one of my founders. So it feels like you would start to do this in series A and beyond. Let me tell you why. When you're pre-seed or seed, your fan product market fit and seed likely and your that's why you're going on to raise a series mm. A. Like you have really good metrics. It looks good. You mm. can actually put those together to raise something. So if you're in pre-seed or seed, it's very rare that you would have a head at marketing or a marketing team. Correct, correct. And particularly with the experience to do the thing that you're talking about. So do you think that this is really a post product market fit? Like I find product market fit, I get my seed, my pre-seed and I'm going on to a series A. When I get into my series A, I have real capital and that's when I want to have a head of marketing and start to define these things. How do you think about that? I mean, I think if you were drawing up a picture perfect, the outcome of this would be your pitch deck for your series A if we're talking about the startup landscape, right? I think in a perfect world, what you want to have happen here is this story and how you think about your category, how you think about your long-term business and product strategy would be perfect if that was your series A pitch deck, right. right? Can you imagine like, hey, I've got you know a handful of customers. I understand what they want. I understand this big market I'm going after. And let me tell you how I'm going to go after it. I'm going to create a new category. This is what I'm going to call it. This is how we're going to invest to go and capture that category. And this is why I need the capital to do that. Yeah. Right? I think once you've raised the Series A capital, it's a little late, partially because you now have like a real material investor who's on board and you need to get sold into the vision kind of afterwards versus like selling them in through the, the capital raising process. While this is in my head because we're talking about raising and different rounds, and pitch decks, uh, and this is kind of the Packy McCormack show a little bit. <laughs> it is. One of my all-time favorite two-by-twos, I don't know if you've seen this because I've seen a lot of pitch decks, but uh -huh. I can't recall the exact uh, different axes, but let's say one of them was like yeah. total crap and absolutely awesome, and then the other one was like <laughs> makes lots of money, makes no money, and he was like, <laughs> yeah. have you ever seen the, every startup pitch, every startup deck is basically they're up at the upper quadrant where they're totally awesome, make loads of money, and every single one of their competitors is like total crap, makes them <laughs> money. Yeah, totally horrible. <laughs> yeah, totally horrible. Yes. I thought that was one of the best. Well, but, but, that, but that's the right point, right? Is what this whole exercise should be is an articulation, not of why your competitors are crap, right? right? But why what they are doing no longer is sufficient for the world. Right. How has the world changed? That's a big difference, right? right? There are a lot of really smart people out there doing work on the wrong things. Right. 
And your job as a marketer and as a company is to come out and say, hey, wow, we've got some really formidable competition. They're really smart. They work really hard. But we fundamentally think they're working on the wrong set of problems. And here's the right set of problems. And here's why these are the right set of problems. This is why these are going to make our customers' lives better long-term than all the other players in this market and what they're working right. on. And when you frame it that way, it's not that kind of like, we're awesome, they're not awesome. It is, we have a difference of, of perspective. And we're going to argue our perspective and you can side with us and think we're going to win or you can side with them. And that's and either one's fine, but like we're going to really be different in how we approach and solve this problem. Yep, yep. If you're a marketing leader and you're listening to us, you're like, ah, oh, this sounds like, yeah, it's really easy to tell me to be irrational. And like, <laughs> totally, totally. How do I start to choose the places I want to think like that, right? I have like my, if you just break marketing into the distribution, the brand, the way that I, mm-hmm. my buy-in experience, and then my positioning. I'm trying to think through this myself. Like if I'm in, I've got a team of maybe 30, 40 people yeah. and I have like, so I have good resources across each of those four pillars. Yeah, that's a lot of resources. That's a huge team. So yeah. how do I start to go? Uh, most of my bets are rational. You'd come in and you'd think these are the right things to do, yeah. but I don't know what my long-term point of differentiation is. I don't know where I'm going to be with world-class and where I'm going to separate myself from all of my competitors. Where would we start to think about where it, where is that pillar we would actually gravitate towards? I think at first it gets rooted in one of those questions I went over, which is like, is this a transformational business? Yes or no. Right. Right. If this is a transformational business and we're asking people to believe something new, to change how they are doing something, right, then that is the irrational thing. And then we're going to go do a whole lot, a lot of rational tactics to make it happen. Right. For example, at HubSpot, we decided to create the category early on of inbound marketing. And we decided to do that by creating that category and doing inbound marketing ourselves, right? Which has created a lot of content. We use content to bring in leads for our sales team. That was awesome. Then everything else other than that we did was highly rational. Like we still did some paid advertising on Google. We did product marketing. We did all the other things that people would do. The problem that I see, it's most of the companies I talk to, they're doing everything everybody's doing with nothing different. Right. Right. It's like, oh, well, we have six competitors. We all basically run the same marketing strategy. We all basically describe our product in the same ways. And then that's you're kind of dead on arrival at that point. Right. And so I think if you're a marketing leader out there, you're like, how do I know if I've got the right balance of rationality to irrationality? It's like, oh, what is the one thing about my strategy that I'm betting a lot of time and effort and money on that is different? And then how well do I feel about executing the rest of my strategy, which is probably similar to the competition and to the marketplace? And can I do that as well or better than everybody else? Right. And if you can do those two things together, you could be really successful. Yeah, that's how I was thinking about it, which is if you take those four things, it's really how do I build large distribution engine? How do I have a better brand? How do I position my product better? And how do I have the best buyer experience? Yep. And when you look at those four things, you can start to like quantify where can I truly be great Like, where is there an opportunity for me to be great? When I look at how people acquire demand in my market, maybe I see that there's really only the better table stakes version that I can do. I don't have like a good thesis or conviction about something that will exist in the market or something I can do today that will pay off in the future. I think that this market is highly rational and they're going to buy in a very specific way. And then you move on to brand and think, well, like, can I create something that's truly differentiated in my brand? Like, how is people's perceptions of brands? Do they truly care about brands? Is it much more of a, just a price sensitivity buy? Is it much more of an emotional buy? 
have intrinsic as brand to my success. And then you go through positioning mm-hmm. and buyer's experience is hard. Cause I feel like if you even do have something in buyer's experience that is truly world beaten in a couple of months, every other competitor will have, we'll just copy it. We'll just copy it. And I think it's hard to differentiate there. Yeah. One of the things that I would love to come back to and just talk a little bit about, see what you think about this is the transformational. Cause that's another common thing that founders really get caught up on is no founder will say they don't want a transformational brand strategy, right? Like every kind of founder mm-hmm. wants to think of their product as rational versus just a better mousetrap. The thing that is interesting about transformational brands and transformational go-to-markets, like your kind of go-to-market is around this kind of transformational message, is anyone who has a transformational message and wins in that market, eventually just has to win in the best practice market, right? Every transformational mm-hmm. product positioning and brand eventually becomes best practice if you win that argument. Correct. Right? We won the argument of inbound marketing. People believe that is a better way to market. Now it's just a best practice argument. It's just like, how good can you do it, right? It's not an argument anymore. It's not transformational anymore. Yeah. How do you think about that? You think that's right? Because that's another thing that comes up a lot when I'm talking to founders. Well, yeah. So there's a couple of things in what Kieran just said there uh, for folks listening. There's one is like, once you disrupt the status quo, you become the status quo. You, yeah, that's a better way of saying that. You then have to block and tackle. And so no matter what your business situation is, you're going to go through cycles of being the disruptor versus protecting from disruption or disrupting yourself, which is the best outcome of that. Another thing I want to touch on that you kind of mentioned, we're t- talking a lot about rationality. The thing I want everybody to remember is that rationality is the disillusionment of what is possible right? It stops you from thinking aspirationally. Mm. It grounds you much lower than what you can actually achieve. Finds you. And that is what we are talking about here today. Everything we are talking about is what is the potential opportunity and how do we position ourselves and invest against that? And like You might look at your opportunity and say, oh, well, this is a better mousetrap business. We have a 10 times better product, but it's the same category and everything. There's nothing wrong with that. But then you have to go and seize all of that opportunity you fundamentally can and know that is what it is. And I think that is kind of one of the core themes of this show and discussion today is how you do not sell the expectations and potential of your marketing strategy and your business strategy short, how you actually live up to the full potential of that. The last part of this is, Kieran, you're like, everybody wants to be transformational. What do you actually do in a world where everybody wants to be transformational? Well, why do people fail to be transformational is really what you want to ask, right? It's like, why don't people succeed in this? Why aren't there more transformational, successful companies? Because it's hard. Right. And inertia is hard. Humans do not like to change. And so if you are asking for transformation from people, there has to be some external force. I'm going to repeat this again. There has to be some external force that is going to facilitate change. You, as a company, team of people, cannot change the behaviors of the world. You can capitalize on behavior change that is facilitated by some environmental external change. For example, at HubSpot, when we started inbound marketing, the external change that we capitalized on was the internet existed, we democratized publishing, you could now publish blog articles, find them on Google, do all these things. Because of that, old ways of doing marketing, the yellow pages, billboards, all of these things became way less effective. And we saw early on that they were going to become way less effective. We didn't make those things less effective. Society made those things less effective. And we facilitated the transformation to a new way. So anytime you are thinking about your category, you have to think about the external forces that are going to change the behavior of your market. And if there are not 
external forces that are going to change the behavior of your market, then it's you don't have an opportunity for transformation. Just stop. Yeah. You fundamentally only can build a better mousetrap in that market. It's like, oh, people aren't going to change. So I have to do something that's 10 times better of what they're already used to doing. I would argue that transformational also only works for certain categories of personas. Let me give you an example. Yes. I think it's really hard to build a transformational message for developers. I think developers care about- They're skeptics. They care about functionality. Mm-hmm. It's not the transformational, how do I transform the way I do something or the way I- It's like- a highly functional decision. Does this make me more efficient? Is this a better way to work? You say that, but AWS was transformational. AWS, you know, Amazon Web Service. AWS transformed the world of developers. Was it a transformational message or was it just better functionality? When I say transformational message, let's talk about inbound. I think the model of AWS was transformational. Right. The consumption-based pricing model, the making it stupidly easy for developers to get started with amazing scalability. So... I'm not saying that the AWS story was transformational, but it could have been. I think they just didn't choose to tell a transformational story, but I actually think it could have been. But everything you said there is highly functional. Whereas when you think about inbound marketing, it was highly emotive. Like we used to show people the surveys of how people thought about marketers. Hey, do you want to be thought of like this or do you want to do something that is much, much better? Like as you as a marketer, do you want to actually enrich people's lives? I'm going to disagree with you a minute. It's just the emotion is happening in a different place. What AWS did, for example, with developers is instead of telling them that emotional change up front, they made it really easy for developers to do this and the emotion happened on the back end. The developer was like, oh, I'm so proud of myself for being able to get this thing up and running and doing, mm. or I'm so I'm so happy that I could learn this new technical skill so fast. It's the altitude of the Because message. of this. Yeah, it happened differently, but it was still transformational. I guess what I'm talking about is aspirational. Yes, I know. Okay, we should better define this. When I think of transformational, I think of aspirational. Yes, and that can be, but it's a, it's a subset, not a superset. Yeah. Not all transformation has to be aspirational. Yeah, so I think there's when we think about transformational, there's the altitude of transformation all the way from like, yes. you could have a transformation message all the way from, I don't know what the bottom would be, but the top would be very aspirational. Yeah, the top's very aspirational, and the bottom is very operational, right? It's just like, oh, I'm doing this thing. I'm doing it a hundred times different, different even than I thought to. I think this is a great framework. And you're just like, oh, cool. I'm transformed, but it's not aspirational at all. Right. I like this. You can do a transformational message, but the altitude of that is within the functional layer of transforming. Correct. It's going to be less aspirational. And more functional. The two by two is essentially like how skeptical versus like altruistic and believing the audience is. And then you've got the other axis, which is basically how aspirational the transformation is versus how operational. Operational or aspirational. You know, and so developers are in the highly skeptic operational quadrant. I'm putting this two by two on LinkedIn, taking all the credit. (laughs) (laughs) This is actually great. Credit at search, Brett. (laughs) I've had this conversation a lot of times and I've talked about the transformational story with founders and talking through this, which is like, hey, you know, the different nuances and variations. Mm -hmm. But I think that two by two in terms of like the persona, the opposite ends of the persona, and then the aspirational to operational is a really great way to think about it. I think we've come up with a really good framework here for people to use and we will do a two by two and post it. 
it, you know, it's not an episode of Marketing Against the Grain, everyone, if there isn't a two-by-two two that Kieran gets excited about. I like two-by-twos, frameworks, two-by-twos. I mean, it's just, it's really just, if it's not a two-by-two two or a game, I feel like if <laughs> yeah. we don't play a game, we have to fill the void of the game with, with some type of mental model, normally a two-by-two. Two. You know, we could play a two-by-two two quiz game of some type. We could give each other, like, this is live brainstorming. We could give each other, oh yeah, give each other marketing problems to solve in a single two-by-two. Or give our listeners, uh, get our listeners. No, no, to- no, no. This, this is this is what we do. We we'll do this in a future episode. We'll each come with three scenarios mm. that happen in the world of marketing, and we will ask the other one to come up with a two by two to diagnose how you would solve that scenario. The two by two show. The two by two show. The MBA graduates will go crazy for the two by two show. We the MBAs will love the MBAs love a good two by two. For all the people who aren't MBAs or losers like Kieran and I, I hope that you enjoyed this week's show. We ran out of so many things to talk about. Uh, I feel like we could probably do a part two of this topic. It might as well. We had three other uh, things we wanted to cover, but we're going to save your ears and, and commuting time for a future episode. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, and we'll be back with you very very soon.